Okay, as you're seated, you can turn to Mark 14. Mark 14. <clears throat> when is it most hard to love someone? When are you most tempted to withhold love from a person? Assuming you know them, of course, obviously it's very hard to love someone you don't know, but... Assuming you're in a relationship with someone, when is it hard to love people? I mean, when we're sick, tired, distracted, obviously, we're not at our best. That's, that's an easy cop-out. I'm just tired, honey. That's why I acted that way or talked to you that way. It might be hard to love someone who's let you down. You're depending on them. They just absolutely dropped the ball. Maybe it was just you know, negligence, they just weren't paying attention, weren't giving their best, or, or maybe they just didn't care, which makes it even harder to love them. What about somebody who's failed to meet your expectations? How hard is it to love that person? You had this idea of what they were going to do or what they were going to be, and they just fell short. How hard is it to love a person who has hurt you? Maybe unintentionally hurt you because they didn't love you well or did something that they didn't realize was hurtful to you or maybe someone who has intentionally hurt you hard is it to love someone who turns out to not be the person that you thought they were and you can no longer be in a relationship with them you can no longer trust them if you can at all put yourself in these places emotionally you begin to get some idea of what Jesus felt during this iconic scene from the last days of his life and ministry Beginning in Mark 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to, them, say, say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Father, we're grateful again for your word as we have worshipped you already through your word. Help us to continue that now. Holy Spirit, come we pray and we ask that you would open our eyes to not only see the truth, the reality, the beauty of you, but to see the truth and reality of ourselves. And may the gospel come in power today to save, to heal, to bind wounds, to redeem again your people as we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus again. Bless us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our walk through the Gospel of Mark, and we have intentionally rearranged some of the material that, so that as we head into Easter, we'll be spending our Sunday mornings looking at these iconic scenes from the final days of Jesus' life and ministry. We've looked at the triumphal entry. We've looked at his anointing uh, with perfume, his anointing for burial. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the, the, the uh, arrest of Jesus and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll look at his trials and, of course, his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. We're going to skip around a little bit, and in doing this, we're going to focus on these iconic events. And while most of what we look like will come from the Gospel of Mark, these events are so well known. We know so many details from them that we'll have to include details from the other Gospels 
as well. You may be surprised at what some gospel writers leave out. There was a, a movie that came out about 10 years ago, The Gospel of John, and the entire dialogue and all the scenes from the movie, this visual portrayal of the Gospel of John, were, were literally the, the Gospel of John, the words of the Gospel of John, a paraphrased translation. And so it's a pretty cool movie. I'd recommend it. And, and you're going along and you're seeing some things that you expect. And then you get to the crucifixion and Jesus is hanging on the cross and the, scun, the sun never goes dark. And me being a self-appointed, resident, arrogant Bible scholar, I was like, these bunch of idiots, they didn't even know the, the sun went dark. Until I go read the Gospel of John, and that's just a detail John didn't include. And they were strict to stick to just what the Gospel of John says. And some of you are thinking, really? So you're going to turn to the Gospel of John and see. But, but anyway, uh, you'd be surprised at what details the Gospel writers may or may not include. And so we want to include all of these in these iconic scenes. Today, as we look at Jesus and the Passover meal with his disciples, which also included the revelation of the betrayal of one of the twelve. And through these passages today, my hope, my prayer is that you see clearly that even while this incredible evil act was being perpetuated on Jesus, Jesus was still in control. Like all through his last hours, he's still in control. Not only that, but he's demonstrating his love for sinful humanity and even this sinful betrayer. And then realizing that we have the life of Jesus in us. His life is in us. What does it mean for us as we're confronted with a few realities and tensions, what does it mean for us to walk with Jesus knowing that God is sovereign over every detail of our lives? And then what does it mean to know that the love of Jesus compelled him to love even the one who would betray him and never repent, and now his love is flowing through us to others who may treat us the same way? So let's begin by, by looking back at verse 10 and 11. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to others. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So going back all the way to the beginning of chapter 14, and actually if you go all the way back to Mark chapter 3, we know that there have been religious leaders who have been looking for ways in which they could get rid of Jesus. He had the power, he had the affection of the people, and he held these religious leaders accountable for their hypocrisy. And so from their perspective, Jesus had to go. There's no way he could continue to exist in their world. The problem, though, with grabbing Jesus is this. He's, he's, he's so popular with the people, what happens if the people revolt? What happens if people fight back? What if they rise up and they want to follow this Messiah to their death? And so how can they grab Jesus without starting a revolt or a riot? They saw him as definitely a great teacher, definitely a great prophet. Some people may have thought he was Messiah-like. Some of the people did see him as a Messiah, but they all loved him. He was well-received by the people because of the power and the miracles he could do. The opportunity came when one of his closest followers, one of the 12 disciples, decided he would give Jesus up. And so he goes to these religious leaders. It must have been pretty well-known knowledge that they wanted to wipe him out for Judas to even approach them about this. And he comes to them and says, look, I'm willing to provide an opportunity for you to grab him. And they say, okay, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver, which wasn't a lot of money. According to Old Testament laws, if you accidentally kill someone's slave, you, could, you would pay the slave owner 30 pieces of silver. And notice what it says about them. They, they heard that he was ready to turn him over and they were glad and they promised to pay him money. They were glad to have an opportunity to see an innocent man who had never broken a single law arrested and taken into captivity and eventually killed. They were glad for this. When you allow jealousy and envy and bitterness and pride to grow in your heart and fester and begin to burn in your soul, you can get to a point where you no longer see your enemies as people. You no longer put yourself in their shoes. You can't sympathize or empathize with them. You no longer care about them at all or see them as human. And you can actually hate someone to the point where you wish they were dead. And if you could get away with it, you might even play a part in making sure they die. This is the destructive nature of sin. This is why it's so important that we root out seeds of bitterness and hate and envy and jealousy and not harbor that, not feed that, or let that fester inside of us. 
This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's not enough to not murder. He says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed the same sin as murder because all you're lacking is the opportunity. If you're harboring anything against anyone and bitterness and anger is growing, then let Jesus help you forgive them and set them free in your heart and thus set yourself free. Judas, on the other hand, is in a different position and much speculation has been given about why Judas would get to a point where he would be willing to give Jesus up. Like maybe he was a zealot. And when Jesus allowed that really expensive perfume that was worth basically a year's salary to be poured on him in preparation for his burial, maybe at that point Judas was like, all right, I'm out. This guy's obviously not going to overthrow Rome. He's wasting these kind of resources. I'm out. Maybe that's why. Maybe Judas was a secret spy of the religious leaders all along that they had planted in his group. I don't think so. Maybe it was just greed. He wanted more money. We know John calls him a thief. In John's uh, story about Jesus being anointed with perfume, John 12, 5 and 6, why would this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas is saying this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. So John all along saw this guy taking money out of the, the pot to put it in his own pocket. And so maybe all along Judas was this shady guy and the disciples knew this. They saw his shadiness. We could go on and there are some very ridiculous theories that Judas was really the only one who loved Jesus and knew Jesus had to die, so he was willing to, to give himself up to, in order for Jesus to die. Uh, I don't think there's any ground for that. The reality is we don't know the motivation of Judas. Whatever it was, he got to this point. He offered Jesus up. They took the offer gladly. They agreed to pay him. And now they would sit and wait for Judas to come and have the right opportunity to grab Jesus with as little fanfare as possible. When would that come? Well, we'll see. But unknown to Judas, he would actually get some assistance from Jesus. But first, Jesus and his closest followers would share this ancient meal. Look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed a Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says... Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Passover, this meal instituted when the Jews were slaves in Egypt some 1,300 to 1,500 years prior. I briefly mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the significance of Passover. God sent the final plague upon the Egyptians to let his people go. The death of the firstborn. And the only way the Jews wouldn't suffer the same fate was if they took a spotless, blemish-free lamb into their home for a few days to examine it, to make sure it was spotless. And then they had to slaughter the lamb and smear its blood over their doorpost. And if they did that, then the, the, the Lord, death, would pass over their home and not allow their firstborn to be killed. This would be the final plague by which God would set his people free and deliver his people. And then they would eat the lamb. They would roast it over fire with herbs and and other things. And then they would have bread that wouldn't be leavened. They wouldn't allow the bread to rise because they were to eat in a hurry because God was about to deliver them. They were about to take off. And so eat this unleavened bread. Didn't have time to rise. Eat this roasted lamb and remember my deliverance. And this became a yearly celebration the Jews were instructed to keep year after year. And they actually had an amazing record of faithfulness. Like they did it, even if it was only in a deed only, like their hearts weren't engaged. They did this Passover feast year after year, thousands of years, keeping this Passover to remember God's deliverance. So that by the time of Jesus, you had literally thousands of pilgrims, Jews from all over that region flocking to Jerusalem this time every year. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that around 69-70 A.D., right before the temple was destroyed, some 250,000 lambs were sacrificed for Passover. Like, how many people does it take to sacrifice 250,000 lambs? Can you imagine how bloody that was? That's how devout they were to keep this feast and remember God's deliverance. And so Jerusalem was packed. Jesus knew this, and so he made preparations 
for them to have a place to meet and share this meal. And his instructions were very similar to his instructions to find a donkey to ride into Jerusalem with. Kind of cryptic, but more showing that he had been in this area for a while. He had met some people. He had made some contact with people who would do as they were expected to do. Very hospitable culture. So the Jews who lived in Jerusalem were expected to make room for the pilgrims coming in for Passover. So consolidate your family so that you can have one or two rooms open in your house so that pilgrims coming in would have space to share in this Passover meal. Jesus meets somebody, and on this day he sends his two disciples, it's Peter and John, Luke tells us, to go into the city and look for this guy carrying a jar of water, which was unusual because that was typically the job of women. Follow this guy carrying a jar of water, find the master of the house that he lives in, and ask if they can use a room for Passover. And Of course, everything had been prepared, so there was no shock. Like, who are you? Why are you asking me this? Of course, as we have prepared everything. And so they would take this room and they would fill it with mats, they would fill it with blankets, they would fill it with short tables to sit and eat on, and pillows, and then they would go and prepare the meal, get the food that was necessary for the Passover feast. Jesus was telling them exactly what to do, and as God can ordain and arrange everything, it happened exactly as he said it would happen. Preparation for the meal would include a roasted lamb that had been sacrificed unleavened bread, a bowl of salt water and bitter herbs, fruit puree, and enough wine for each person to drink four cups that coincided with the four parts of the Passover meal, the fourfold blessing of God. I wish we had time to dig into all the details of the Passover meal because it's not only infused with meaning and significance that pointed back to God's deliverance in Egypt, but it was infused with some symbols that pointed forward to God's deliverance through Jesus. All kinds of aspects of this meal where when the family would come together and they would include their neighbors if the family was small, they would gather around and there would be a blessing over the meal and the youngest member of the family would ask the elder, the head of the household, a question. Why is this night unlike other nights? And that would begin a series of explanations and walking the family through the story of God's deliverance in Egypt. As they go back and forth with these questions and answers and eating this meal and drinking, it would be this beautiful... Uh, a meal that incorporated all five senses, the, uh, 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 eating and smelling and drinking and tasting as, as they hear about this deliverer who had come and, this, and, and their hearts longed for this deliverer who had yet to come. If you ever get a chance to sit in on a, a Passover meal, a cedar meal is what's called today, um, I would encourage you to do that. Somebody who can explain a lot of it to you. Scott's done that, so if y'all want to check with Scott, he can walk you through every part of it. Um, by memory, today, before you leave. But at some point in the meal, believed to be, according to Matthew 26, when they ate the bitter herbs, probably grated horseradish, horseradish, disgusting, Jesus drops this bombshell, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now it gets real. Jesus has been predicting his death. They didn't really understand Jesus just talked about a woman pouring perfume on him in preparation for his burial. Now the reality of what's happening is hitting closer to home. Someone that I'm sharing this meal with will give me up, deliver me over. Literally is what betray means, hand me over. Sharing a meal, this sign of hospitality and friendship and fellowship has just been cut by this bitter reality of the betrayal of Christ. The reaction of the disciples is amazing, sorrow, and saying to one another, saying to Jesus, is it me? Is it me? Like, isn't that incredible? Like, if they saw Judas as shady throughout, it's like all 11 fingers should just, obviously it's him. And we'll come back to this in a few weeks, but it seems as though all the disciples detected a weakness in themselves that would be manifested very soon. Jesus helps by saying, no, it's one of the twelve, which helps us realize there's probably other people in the room, including maybe Mary, Martha, Lazarus, maybe Simon the leper, possibly John Mark. Some believe that this was John Mark's uh, parents' home, the John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
So he narrows it down. It's going to be one of the twelve, one who's close enough to dip his hand in the dish with me. And then you have this amazing verse, verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And in this verse, you have these two rock-solid bedrock biblical truths in perfect tension with each other. The absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute ability of humanity to make willful choices that have real effects for which they will be held accountable and responsible. Scriptures are clear that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Jesus in this story, overseeing, ordaining all events in preparation for the Passover, being fully aware of every detail related to his soon death that's just hours away at this point, being fully aware of the coming betrayal of Judas, even to the point in John's account of this night, after he identifies a betrayer was coming, he looked at Judas and told him in John 13, 27, what you are going to do, do quickly. He helps him out. Now is the time to leave. Like, here's your part in the play, Judas. Go do it. You see it there in verse 21. For the Son of Man, the, the reference of Jesus to himself, drawn from the Old Testament, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What's about to happen to the Son of Man is what's been written. Now, now what had been written? Because all you have is the Old Testament. So where does it say in the Old Testament that the Son of Man is going to suffer as the Son of Man is about to suffer? And, and we've talked about how you have in the Old Testament clearly a messianic figure, and you clearly have the suffering servant. But it's not until Jesus comes along that he pulls those two together and says, this, this is me. I am the Messiah who's going to suffer, which is part of the reason the Jews missed it. They didn't see the connection between those two because it really wasn't there. But in the Son of Man, in Jesus, he would be both of these things. So Jesus, throughout just this story, you see his sovereignty. Go do all these things, and the disciples go do these things that happens exactly like he says it's going to happen. Like, who in here can make that, make that happen in your life? Oh, on Monday, this is exactly what's going to happen Monday, let me tell you. Like, that never happens. Which is part of the frustration we live with. Because our plans never work. They always fail in some way or another. But not with God. The scriptures show us a God who created all things, sustains all things, and works in and through all things to accomplish and fulfill all of his purposes. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Talking about Jesus, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The reason the universe still exists is because Jesus is holding it up. That's it. And that includes every single part of the universe, including your beating heart right now. The reason your heart hadn't stopped beating is because Jesus is sustaining your heartbeat. Colossians 1, you also see it there, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Your brain is still working, your lungs are still pumping air, because Jesus is sustaining you. It's him. It's not just science, it's just not the laws of nature. It's Jesus behind all of that. In fact, the only reason science exists is because of Jesus sustaining all things so that things could be predictable. That you would know, okay, this usually happens and this is going to happen. Gravity always works. This understanding of God's direct involvement in creation goes back to the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9, 6. You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is, is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and, and the host of heaven worships you. Job 34, 14 and 15. If he, talking about God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If God just decided he wanted all of his spirit back, everything would die including all creatures and humanity. Just instantly, His Spirit is giving all of the earth its life right now. Without the Spirit of God, everything would just drop dead. You can't even make a movie that could imagine that. It's amazing how dependent we are on God for breath and life and being. 
And this God who created all things, sustains all things, is working in and through all things to accomplish his purposes. Ephesians 1.11. We read this at the beginning of the service. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things are operating according to the counsel of his will to accomplish his purposes. Romans 8, 28, we know this one a little better. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So when you hear us say things like God's always working it out for our good, that's what we're drawing that from. He's working all things good and bad for our good and his glory all the time. God is working in all things, and this is an example in Scripture when all definitely means all. He's working all things according to the counsel of His will. He's working in all things for our good. So see the intimacy of God working in all aspects of creation, even in things that we just think are natural and are just kind of operating on their own. Like, I'm not going to give you verses for all these, but I'll just name them. I give them to you later on. Psalm 148, God's commanding and bringing fire and hail and snow and frost and wind. Psalm 104, God makes the grass grow. Job 38, God's directing the stars in the morning. Matthew 5, God's making the sun rise and the rain to come. Psalm 104, God's feeding the animals. Matthew 6, God's feeding the birds. Matthew 10, God is aware of every single sparrow that dies. God provides in Matthew 6 all of our food so much so that he tells us to pray asking for daily bread. God supplies, Philippians 4.19, all the needs of his children and expects us to look to him for them uh, in every aspect of life, all of our needs. Psalm 139, God ordains the exact number of our days. They are written in a book. God knows the day we will die. He knows it before we're ever born. It's an ordained number of days. Psalm 139. God is involved in forming us in our mother's womb. God is knitting together Zoe right now. Forming Zoe in Jeanette. That's a little weird. Let's move on. All of our talents and abilities are from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, Psalm 18. Even our affairs and the affairs of nations fall under the sovereign control of God. Proverbs 16, 13. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Psalm twenty two twenty eight. 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, the two errors that we can make if, if, when you think about this is we can go to one extreme or the other. We can, we can go to the extreme of fatalism where whatever will be, will be. It doesn't matter what we do. Or you can go to the extreme of determinism where we're just programmed robots. And, and both of those are extremes that we have to stay away from because that's, that's also not the testimony of Scripture. Of course... To deny God's sovereignty over all and in all things is also an error because either God's not powerful enough to be sovereign or he is powerful but not omniscient enough. So he doesn't know what's coming. That's kind of open theism is what that's called. Or man is in fact more sovereign and in control than God. God's just kind of following our lead. But in affirming God's sovereignty over all and in all things, we can also affirm that our decisions, our choices are real with real effects, so much so that we will be rightly held accountable. God has built this into creation. Because you may already be feeling the tension, especially if you've never thought about this before, because you're like, what? God has built into creation this ability for Him to be sovereign over everything and in everything, and for us to make real choices that have real effects for which we will be held accountable. Wayne Gruden puts it like this. A rock is really hard because God made it with the property of hardness. Water is really wet because God made it with the property of wetness. Plants are really alive because God made them with the property of life. And our choices are real choices because God made us with the property of being able to make real choices that have real effects. So much so, we will have to give an account. He's designed it this way because he's God and he can so, so you see this in Mark 14, 21. 
Sovereignty of God, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What's going to happen is the plan of God. The Son of Man will be crucified. Will be giving up his life for the ransom of many. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if he had never been born. The man who betrays the Son of Man is being used by God to accomplish the purposes of God. But woe to him for making that choice. It would have been better if he had never been born. The judgment for Judas, who was up close and personal with the Son of God for three years, saw everything, knew everything about Jesus, yet rejected Jesus as Messiah. His judgment for all of the revelation he received, and we are held accountable in proportion to the revelation that we have received. If you're going to reject Jesus, don't go to church. That's just more accountability. Every time you step into this building or every time you encounter the word of God or every time you engage with the body of Christ and the word of God, you're going to be held accountable for what you read and what you hear and what you see. More revelation, more accountability. And his judgment for all of that revelation is going to be so bad, Jesus says, it would have been better if he had never been born. That would have been more merciful. Judas will be held accountable for the choice he made to reject and betray Jesus. Even though, as John points out in John 13, 27, a little bit more detail, I gave this verse earlier. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Like it's not as though Judas could say, well, Satan, the devil made me do it. He was in me. No, he's accountable for that too. Even though he was acting under the influence of Satan. Which is how we're all acting apart from the Spirit of Christ being in us, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And even though he was part of God's providential plan to have his son betrayed by one of his friends, as we read in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, Judas would still be held accountable for his actions. You see, the mistake we can make when we talk about man's real choices is if we say that man has a free will that is so free he's outside of God's sovereign will. Our man's free will directs God's sovereign will. That's going too far. And you make man sovereign over God. And no thanks. If that's the world you want to live in, have fun with that. I trust God. I don't trust man. We need God sovereign over man. Now, it is a mystery. Like, I'm not, <laughs> don't hear me say, it's as simple as this. A plus B equals C. It's a mystery how all these things can be true. How God can be completely in control and sovereign over all and in all things, and yet we make real choices that have real effects for which we'll be held accountable. No one is saying they haven't figured it out. In fact, if you say you have it figured out, you probably don't have it figured out. What we do know for sure is that Scripture declares both realities true and they, they exist in tension. And there are several passages like this one that show this relationship. And Ephesians 1 does it too. I just didn't put it on the screen. Acts 17, 24-27 The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need us. God needs nothing. He has everything in and of himself. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Isn't that amazing? God who made all things, gives us all things, needs nothing, created all man, decided where we would exist on this planet for the purpose of us to seek him and crawl our way to him and find him, knowing that he's not far from any of us. He's right there. But there's still that, that responsibility that, that people have to seek God. Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13 is another passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What do you do? Work out your own salvation. 
That doesn't mean earn your salvation. That means walk it out, figure it out, live it out. Understanding that it's God who's working in you to accomplish His purposes, His will and His purpose in your life. So you're not working in isolation. You're not just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing the best you can. You're working in response to God who's already working in you. He initiated everything. And He's sovereign in that work over all and in all things while we're making real choices that we will be held accountable for. This relationship even extends to the evil actions committed by man, as we see in Mark 14, but also Acts 2.23, just kind of summing up everything that's about to happen. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is God's plan, but you did it. That's Peter talking to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. What did they do? They killed Jesus. Why? Because it was God's plan to take place for the redemption of mankind. So God is sovereign and is working in all things and through all things to accomplish His purposes. And this includes God working in and through the sinful actions of humanity. This does not make God the author of evil, nor the one who is evil or held responsible for evil. Otherwise, God is not good, and if God is not good, then God is not God. And we're hopeless. Let's go home and have fun. But just as God created a world in which, as moral agents, we make real choices, it had to include in those choices the possibility of sinful choices. And God had to be able to even work His purposes out through our sinful choices as well as our good choices. And because He is God, He can do that. Which which doesn't mean, may sin abound, that grace may abound more. It doesn't mean, oh, I can just do whatever I want and God's going to work it out for our good. That's not what we're supposed to do. But even when we do fail, God is not up there like, oh no, what am I going to do? They blew it. Okay, I can work through that too. Like He already knew it was coming. Why didn't God just make the world and universe free from sin and evil? Like, why couldn't it just be one big episode of Barney? It's all good. Everything is happy. You're all getting along and it's raining lemon drops and gumdrops all the time. Why couldn't that be the world? The short answer is this. Besides, that would be miserable. Uh, The universe and world is in a state that which... The universe and world is in the state in which God has created it which allows for God to get the maximum amount of glory and worship as He is able to demonstrate the maximum amount of His attributes. God gets the most glory and worship by demonstrating as much of Himself as He possibly can. If we only knew His love, as in He is a good Father who gives His children good things all the time and never lets bad things happen, so the universe and the world would be a Barney episode... We would never see his love demonstrated to those who would betray him and even crucify him. How much more does it mean for Jesus to say on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So you see this love for the betrayer demonstrated in Mark 14 in a small way because Jesus seemingly has pity on Judas. Like it had been better if he'd just not been born. I really hate that you're the one who has to do this. But we know from the other gospel accounts that some other stuff happened on this night. John 13, in fact, records Judas was in the room when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. An act which would be the foundation of Jesus saying in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can you imagine the emotions in Jesus as he's washing the feet? This amazing act of humility and love, this disgusting act act of humility and love, knowing that the next time Judas put on his sandals, it would be to walk to the chief priest to tell them where Jesus was so they could come arrest him. Washing the feet of the one who would go so far as to identify Jesus to the soldiers with a kiss? 
this symbol of friendship and love. And like all through the gospel accounts, you don't see Jesus treating Judas any different. You see the disciples making comments, and Jesus, Jesus like in John 6, recognizing that there was a, a son of Satan among them, but he, he doesn't point him out. He doesn't shun him. Like, okay, you 11, come over here, let me talk to you. It's not important for you, Judas. The saddest part of Judas's life isn't even the betrayal. It's incredibly sad and wrong and horrible. The worst part was his suicide. Recorded in Matthew 27 and Acts 1. Judas would regret his choice. He would give back the money to the chief priest and then he would hang himself. And as far as we know, he never repented. And closed the door on his opportunity to be forgiven by Christ and reconciled. I say as far as we know because you never know in those dying moments. It's possible he realized his sinfulness and called out to Jesus for salvation. We, we don't know. But there was definitely no visible repentance and reconciliation with Christ, as we would see with Peter and the other disciples who would betray Jesus and abandon and deny Jesus. And so see this amazing love of Jesus sitting at a table with one man who would betray him according to God's plan and other men who would either deny him or abandon him according to God's plan. And yet here he is walking them through this Passover meal whose symbolism points directly to his willing and loving sacrifice for their sins, which would take place in just a few hours. I'm about to give my life for a bunch of sinners like you. So we come back to these two questions I mentioned earlier. What does it mean for our walk with Jesus to know that God is sovereign over every single detail of our lives? I'm going to think through it for a little while here, but I think you should think through it more beyond this morning. And it should be part of your discussion maybe at lunch in a little while or, or with your missional community this week or your DNA group this week or your family. What does it mean to know that God is sovereign over every single detail? Like, why, why do we ever fear or have worry or anxiety? If you really believe God, who is the this is not a word, goodest, best, wisest, most loving, perfect, holy, righteous being in the universe who is your father. He loves you, has adopted you into his family through Jesus Christ. He is in control over every aspect of your life. Everything. Every heartbeat, every cell running through your body, every need that you have today and for the rest of your life. He already knows what you need in every decade for you, for your spouse, for your kids, for your grandkids. He's not aloof. He's not cut off. He's not unaware. He knows and is in full control, which means he has power and knowledge and it's good for us and glorifying to Him. Like, like, why would we ever be afraid or worry when we think about these things? We get to walk with this God. We get to talk to this God. We get to listen to this God. We get to tell others about Him and trust Him and see Him at work in our lives. And because God is sovereign and in control, all things that happen in our life, it is, is according to His purpose and plan and for our good. And we know that when we get to the end of our life, whenever that comes, it might be today, it might be in, in uh, 50, 60, 70 years, that we will take our last breath exactly when God has ordained it, not a moment before. And our next breath, because of Jesus, will be in the presence of Jesus. And then we get to hang out with Jesus and God's people forever and talk about all these crazy times that we had being God's people on planet Earth. We'll still be on planet Earth, but it'll be the new heavens and new earth. And it's all good. Like we're always headed to something better. Circumstances may get worse, but in the end, it's always going to be getting better for us as God's people. And he's not going to like, it's not going to get to a point where God's going to change the rules. Because he's in control of himself as well. And he says, I don't change. 
And he's not going to get to a point where some enemy of God's going to rise up and overtake him like, like happens in the movies all the time. He's always going to be in control. There's no surprise ending to the Bible that we don't know about. As exactly as he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen because exactly as everything has happened, it's happened according to his purpose and will, the good and the bad. So we can rest and we can trust when we grasp that God is in control of all things. Because we can just lay our schedules and our plans down. Just breathe. Just relax. Right? You're not ever going to get everything done. If you don't know that, let me just help you out this morning and let you know you're never going to get your to-do list done. In my family, my to-do lists are legendary. I've got to-do lists on top of to-do lists. And it's like this ongoing goal. I'm going to get one of them done one day. It's never going to get done. So I just can take my plans and take the things I try to schedule out. And with the Spirit of God helping me do the best I can. Knowing that He will work in me and through me to accomplish exactly what He wants to accomplish in my life. Like, it doesn't lead to apathy or laziness, if you truly understand this. It actually energizes you. Because you know that these everyday tasks are accomplishing things far bigger than you think they're accomplishing. Whether they're accomplishing God's purposes in you or in the people around you that the tasks are supposed to help. Like, little bitty things that you're doing are doing big things in you and and in others. God's using those for His purposes and plans. As John Piper has famously said, God is always doing 10,000 things in our life, and we may be aware of three of them. So we do those three things He places before us, and we trust Him with everything else. And it frees us up not to become apathetic and lazy, but actually to do hard things and risky things that require faith in Him, where you get out on the limb of trusting God, and unless God comes through, you're going to crash and burn. Like there's no way that the crossing churches still exist today. Apart from God having graciously decided that it would. That's it. We're not smart enough. We're not talented enough. We're not holy enough to explain why this church is still here. And the church and our lives will continue to be sustained by God no matter what He calls us to do, no matter where He sends us, no matter what he ha- we have to sacrifice or give up, no matter what obstacles may come, no matter what enemies may come. We will continue until he says we're done. And when he says we're done, we're done. Whether he sends us somewhere else or whether we're dead. And so we can go all out crazy to accomplish the purpose and will of God in our lives. And one day drop dead and go hang out with Jesus for the rest of our of eternity. And 10 million years upon 10 million years. And realizing that God is sovereign sets us free from fretting or worrying or anxiety. Like he's got this. He's got you. He's not going to fail you. He has never failed his people. You won't find one person who has been part of God's people who has ever existed that God has failed. You can't find one. They don't exist. He will never. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be exactly the way you want it. There's got to be some submission there. We're not God, but he's he's not going to fail to work for your good and his glory in every single circumstance. So what does it mean, secondly, to know that the love of Jesus compelled him to love the one who would betray him? And now his love is flowing through us. So so who are you free not to love? Who can you put on your list? I, I don't have to love them. I can love all these other people, but not that person because... Who are you incapable of loving knowing that the love you show is actually the love of Christ flowing through you? It's His love you're channeling to other people. So that family member or friend who has hurt you, that coworker who's hard to get to know, the neighbor whose dog keeps pooing in your yard. What about the acquaintance that uh, you don't know them, so you're like, how will they react when you introduce Jesus in the gospel? They're going to look at me like I'm weird. And when I share this part of our relationship, love compels you to go knowing that every single relationship you are in has been ordained by God for you to be the hands to feed the voice of Christ in their life. You might not be the only one, but you might be the only one. And so we go in love 
trusting God's sovereign purposes to share and show his life and expecting God to move and work and do his work in us and through us. God's sovereignty, God's power, God's love. This is what enables and empowers our salvation. It's what makes us God's people. It's why God can accomplish his purposes through us. But through us, right? That's who we are. And so I ask you this morning, how has that landed on you today? Like you're here in this room, it's not by luck. There's no such thing as luck if God is sovereign. There's no such thing as coincidence if God is sovereign. God has designed and purposed that you would be here today. And now that you've heard, you will be held accountable for how you will respond. It's your choice. The Spirit of God is calling you to respond. And I hope and pray that if you've never come to a knowledge and salvation, saving relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that today you see the beauty of Jesus. And today can be the day of your salvation as you call out to Jesus in repentance, as you believe in Jesus and who He is and what He's done, as you, as you are made alive by Christ, as Ephesians 2 tells us that happens to people who are born again. Like today, you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And if that has truly happened for the first time today, like you need to tell somebody. In a few minutes, moments when we pray, you can get up and go find somebody and tell them, like, I, I think I'm a Christian now. I believe. I want to believe. Or maybe have questions. You want to go have lunch and, and ask questions and talk more about this gospel and who this Jesus is. For, for, for most of us, the Spirit of God is calling you to repent of your sin again and turn and trust in Jesus again. And whatever those sins are, today there is life and freedom and forgiveness. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through Jesus. And you, here we are, 2017, you're still making it available. And it's still as powerful and as fresh and as real and as life-giving as it has always been for thousands of years to millions upon millions of people. We thank you that we don't get a watered-down version of Jesus and the gospel. We get all of him when we repent of our sin and trust in him. So I pray that would be true of everyone here. And that we would live these lives of repentance and faith in Christ continually. Make it happen. Because you're God and you're powerful and amazing and awesome and you can. And help us to respond willingly, freely, lovingly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few moments we're going to share in this ancient meal of communion. And uh, we're going to have some, a prayer and a time to reflect and and let the Spirit of God continue to speak to you and let you respond to repentance and faith. And when you're ready, you can come and grab a piece of bread and dip it in the, the cup of, of juice and return to your seats. And then we'll share in this meal together. You can also give of your tithes and offerings in the basket. And this is available to anyone who is a repentant, baptized believer in Jesus Christ.